0: Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay.
1: The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as a necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. As part of a special series, the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and my guest today is Ken White. He's a partner with Los Angeles' Brown, White, and Osborne, where he represents clients in civil and criminal matters. He's also the host of Legal Talk Network's Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast, and KCRW's All the President's Lawyers, which is about President Donald Trump's legal issues. And Ken writes The Popat Report, a newsletter about criminal justice and free speech issues. Ken, welcome to the
0: show. Thank you for having me, Stephanie.
1: And I wanted to mention, too, you uh, are behind the very popular uh, Twitter account, Pat. So with everything that's going on in the country and so much of it hashing out on social media, how are you managing your Twitter use during all of this?
0: Well, I think my wife would say not well. Um,
1: but <laughs> Is she telling you to get off or to stay on? <laughs>
0: Definitely, uh, to, to get off more. Yeah. You know, I think because we're deprived of all these uh, normal avenues of human interaction, people have turned to social media more with, I think, very mixed results. You add to that a very busy and controversial political season, and uh, the results are somewhat inflammatory.
1: Okay, do you have any advice for someone that wants to get into the back and forth on Twitter, or maybe you have a you know a Twitter fight, not that you engage in Twitter fights, but what what's your advice to really own somebody on Twitter?
0: <laughs> I, I guess my uh, <laughs> advice would be uh, not to focus on that, you know, to talk about things that you care about. Uh, and that you're passionate about, and get involved in those. And uh, if any fights flow from that, well, then so be it. But you know, doing it for the sake of the fights is probably a, a bad way to go about it. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure I have fallen victim to that now and then.
1: And I think you're really good at a quick statement that is funny and sticks with people and gets your point across. Are you the one who tweeted, I saw it in a cartoon, so it must be true? Or something like that?
0: No, uh, that that one wasn't me. Uh, it sounds very truthful, okay. though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm attributing some video you that wasn't yours. Now, on the other side, I mean, outside of social media, as a lawyer who does civil and criminal defense work, how are you advising your clients about social media? And how has that changed, if at all, during the pandemic?
0: Well... I've always advised my clients that they need to be very cognizant of how social media use may impact their legal fortunes and how these days it's very routine for people to monitor social media accounts in both civil and criminal cases to see what use can be made of them, what people have said and how that might be be used to discredit them or prove uh, something about them. Uh, I think that's even more prevalent now during this pandemic because people are spending more time on social media. I I think they're upset a lot and that shows up on social media and everyone's attention is focused there because it can't be focused on normal human interaction that we're used to. So I think uh, it's even more perilous than it's been in the past. And, you know, we've seen some interesting and amusing examples of that over the last six months.
1: Are you advising clients to just stay off social media right now?
0: No, um, I'm advising them that they can't think of social media as some sort of free-for-all where nothing you say matters. Uh, It can matter. Uh, You know, you can say things there that'll be used against you in a civil war criminal case. You know, I wrote about recently uh, a guy who was facing uh, a federal prison sentence, and he asked the judge for consideration to serve his sentence on home detention because he was worried about coronavirus conditions uh, in custody, which is a very reasonable worry. And the prosecution came back and uh, pointed out a whole bunch of uh, things on Twitter where he said basically that he thought the virus was nonsense and a hoax and that there weren't that any really danger. And uh, the judge looked at that and shot him down. So that was a, a very uh, real example of someone who was trash-talking and, and found that trash-talking used against them in court.
1: And that was the Rick Ham story, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And that, did he also post something about how he was going to an outdoor festival?
0: Yeah, I think it was a white trash party or something like that, uh, or it, basically it was something celebrating, hey, we're a bunch of people who don't believe in this virus, so we're congregating. You know, I, I'm sure that a lot of what he was saying was sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek, kind of performative, and maybe not completely literal, as social media often is, but... You know, you can't always expect a federal judge to understand that uh, nuance. And uh, you really don't want to get caught up short with something you said online contradicting what you're saying to a judge. So we we had a case recently uh, of a much more traditional sort where. Someone was claiming to be badly injured and were, uh, you know, on social media shown cavorting around and going to work and generally acting like they were perfectly fine. Uh, That's a very typical use of social media these days is to uh, undermine uh, injury claim. So I don't think that clients often recognize that risk and they have to be sort of brought along to understand that everything they say on social media is going to go into the hopper of how their credibility uh, is assessed and how it's proven what did or didn't happen in the case.
1: Well, for something like that, is it hard to make a successful argument to the court that your client was basically just, as they say, stunting for the gram?
0: Uh, You know, it is a little difficult because – That's a cultural thing, and uh, on Uh average. (laughs) He
1: felt terrible, but he wanted to look like he was working out, but he wasn't really.
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's a cultural thing that judges are probably in a group that is somewhat less likely to get. So, Uh uh, one of the things about about social media is that there are uh, just a huge variety of subcultures, and you don't necessarily – understand those subcultures if you're not immersed in them. You don't understand the significance of what people say. We've seen that a lot in uh, threat cases. So there have been cases when People in various internet subcultures have said things that outsiders have interpreted as a genuine threat to do harm that everyone in the subculture would just understand as trash talking or irony or that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And and you have – social media uh, promotes these culture clashes where people come in and look at something that was said in a particular place and interpret it the way they would in their own uh, culture and it it just doesn't work. So I would rather not have to explain to a judge – how to interpret what my client said on social media in a benign way. I'd rather they didn't say that thing at all as long as uh, their fortunes are tied to a legal case.
1: I see. Uh, Now, you often write explainer pieces about the law, which are taken in by— people in the legal profession and people outside of it like for instance you recently wrote one about the outrage around Lori Laughlin, the woman from the Varsity Blues investigation in Full House and people were upset about her two-month prison sentence and you pointed out that this outrage is kind of unfounded what's do you think what's the biggest misconception the public has about the criminal justice system
0: well there are a lot of them <laughs> so um <laughs> I think that the media does some good jobs in sort of exposés and deep dives on particular issues, you know, uncovering uh, misconduct in a police department or a series of scandals in a prosecutor's office or something like that. But on a day-to-day basis, it does not do a good job in explaining how the system really works and tends to perpetuate uh, misunderstandings and misconceptions. So this with Lori Laughlin was a, a great example. What the media reported widely all over the place was that she had gotten to choose a uh, cushy prison with nice conditions and how outrageous that was. And then there was a Second wave of the same story when LeBron James went on Instagram and commented uh, how outrageous it was that she got to choose her prison uh, when most people, you know, uh, mostly black and brown people in different circumstances don't get to. The problem with the story was it was just completely misleading. The prison that she, uh, quote-unquote, chose was the one uh, low-security facility for women in the federal system anywhere near her home. It was almost certainly the one she would have gotten whether or not she had chosen it. And the process where uh, she asked to be put there and the judge recommended it was exactly what happens in the vast majority of cases. So it was really – a case of the media not understanding what was going on and promoting it as an outrage when it was actually something very routine. I think a lot of that happens. Uh, it's very tempting to post clickbait stories about the criminal justice system that tend to lead to us very much misunderstanding it. So. You know, that's how you get stories about, oh, this person was charged with something and they're facing up to 200 years in jail and yet murderers get out in 10. How can that be right? And, you know, that's based on completely a misunderstanding of how sentences work and what a maximum sentence is versus a likely sentence and so on. So I think the media needs to do a better job of accurately reporting on the criminal justice system to be people to begin to understand uh, the many serious problems with it.
1: What can lawyers do to help?
0: Well, uh, lawyers can clearly and directly explain what's going on in their corner of the law. The legal system is big and diverse and varied and there's all sorts of corners of it that have people who are uh, a specialist and in in your specialty, you can just sort of simply and straightforwardly say, no, this is the way it actually works and point out uh, when the media has gotten something wrong. And uh, you can resist the urge to opine outside your area of expertise. So it's fairly common once you kind of get on the circuit of uh, talking about legal issues to the media that they'll call you for anything, even if it's way outside your area of expertise. And you you see people who become the lawyer who gets shoved onto TV or on the radio when there's some legal issue, even if it's something you've never practiced. And you can resist that. That's a good thing for lawyers to do is to say, no, that's really not my area, so I'm not going to talk about it.
1: Do you feel like there's been more of these stories that are misleading about the legal system during the pandemic?
0: I don't know if it's during the pandemic. I think that there have been more misleading stories during the Trump administration – because of the uh, increased focus on some elements of the legal system. So, you know, a lot of what we talk about on um, All the President's Lawyers, the show I do, is how the reporting about the how the federal criminal justice system works is pretty misleading. And routine things are presented as outrageous and extraordinary, and uh, extraordinary things are portrayed as normal. And so it's very much sort of an outsider looking in type of approach to the law that I don't think has been successful in educating people about how things really work.
1: What's an example of something that's been portrayed as out of the ordinary, but is in fact ordinary with the administration?
0: With the administration, with the different criminal cases against the people in the president's orbit, I think that people have been very susceptible to federal judges' moods. And this will get me in trouble, I'm sure, with the next few federal judges I appear in front of. But... Federal judges vent. Uh, they say what's on their mind. Uh, they vent their spleen. Uh, they get upset. They yell at the lawyers. That's not a reliable indication of how the case is going to go. So during the various cases here against Gates and Manafort and and people like that, you had a lot of horse race stuff where people said, "Oh, today the judge was you know very upset with the prosecutors." This shows that there's, uh, you know, a problem with the case, is it going to survive, when really, you know, that's just judge's mood. It's no no more significant than your your spouse being irritable with you before their first cup of coffee. Uh, And I, I think that the media needs to learn how to take sort of a longer view of a case and be less swayed by judge's rough language on any given day. Another example is just the way that uh, the administration has been fairly successful in portraying very routine things as extraordinary and outrageous. So here I'm thinking about General Flynn and the FBI coming into the White House and questioning him and not telling him uh, that he should bring a lawyer and asking him questions when they already knew the answer and that type of thing. And, And the administration has had a very successful narrative um, portraying that as absolutely outrageous abuse of the system, and you know maybe it is, but it's also incredibly routine, and uh, that's the way agents interview people all the time. That's the way they get confessions and incriminating statements and uh, false statements charges. So um, I think that we've been uh, too eager to believe that something bizarre and extraordinary is happening which you think that you can fix by just getting rid of these particular people involved instead of recognizing deep systemic problems of routine bad behavior.
1: Got it. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about how your everyday work has changed during the pandemic. We'll be right back.
0: As the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice, LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was
1: developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect the IOLTA
0: accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. Visit lawpay.com ABA to learn more.
1: And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to a special series of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. Joining me today is Ken White, a Los Angeles litigator who also blogs and tweets at Pope Pat and hosts various podcasts. So, Ken, you are in Los Angeles, right? I am, yes. What is a typical day like for you since the pandemic started?
0: Well, I'm prone to getting up early, and I still am during the pandemic, and so uh, compared to what it used to be when I would drive in and get to my office by 6.30 uh, and spend the day there doing things, now I'm doing it all here from the computer, and uh, there are a lot of Zoom calls, there are a lot of other calls, and there are a lot of forms of client outreach and and figuring out how to do things that we once did face-to-face, uh, and one of the most uh, tricky things has been to advise existing and potential clients about how things have changed now that generally you're not going to get that quick Uh, judicial decision that you might be able to get in the past, that you're not going to be able to just uh, file a lawsuit and go in for a restraining order and and get things moving along quickly, Uh, that dramatically changes strategic considerations in litigation in ways that we haven't completely figured out yet. So there's a lot of constantly adjusting to this new normal and trying to figure out when it might end.
1: So are you saying that basically there's a lot of waiting for hearings and deadlines are extended?
0: Yes, uh, that's part of it. Nobody really wants to do a face-to-face deposition or meeting. uh, So there's decisions about, you know, do we do this deposition uh, by video or do we want that face-to-face quality of a deposition and therefore we wait? But the other element is that, you know, you used to be able to make credible threats of litigation. You could say, if we can't resolve this Uh, We're suing. We're going into court. We're going to move the case along. We're going to go to the judge and ask for a ruling on these three things. And now you have to have to accept that even if you do file a lawsuit, that in many places you're not getting in front of the judge anytime soon. You're not getting any sort of swift judicial action. There's probably going to be no real movement in the case for months and months. And so that very much changes the strategic balance of how you do things in lawsuits. Uh, Without that credible threat of, you know, we're going to go into the judge and deal with this. It affects everything from the discovery process, where I think people are more prone to taking hard stances um, that the judge is not going to be stepping in to uh, contradict anytime soon, to just strategic decisions about whether to sue at all when you know that you're just going to sue and then we're going to wait for three or six months before there's going to be any action in the lawsuit.
1: Have you had to do any remote depths or have you been able to avoid those? I know most lawyers that I know really dislike remote depths.
0: I've done a few, and my Uh feeling about it is that I'm okay with it for less important witnesses and witnesses who are not hostile. But with key witnesses and potentially difficult or hostile witnesses, uh, I don't like it. I like it there face-to-face, and I feel that Building up a rapport in a negative or positive way, and having them there to follow up uh, is very important to making a deposition to work. To to getting the measure of control over a witness that you need to really pursue them if it's an important or uh, somewhat uh, contentious deposition.
1: So, how can you work out court calendars with that? Because you can't really go to the judge and say what you just told me, right? But you want, might want some extra time. And maybe you could work that out with opposing counsel.
0: You know, we, we've not yet had a situation where uh, the judge wants to move things along, and I don't. Uh, uh, for the most part, all the judges are kicking everything way down the road. So uh-huh. I, I, I'm in Los Angeles where— you know, most of the courts have been shut down except for emergency-type things. They are just phasing into a concept of um, reopening. And you know, in the, in the state court, civil cases that might have gone to trial this year are being kicked to maybe go to trial in the fall of 2021. And there's going to be a very long delay of at least six months, more likely a year, year and a half in all these cases. So to the extent I want delays, I can pretty much get them. So my strategy has been so far to take depositions that are not really contentious or crucial and the rest trying to wait until um, we can do it face-to-face, which I'm hoping will be by the end of the year or early next year.
1: I'm wondering, too, if you are in private practice, as much as you you don't want to depose an important witness, it must be hard, too, because if you're not going through these depths, then... You know that's not getting paid to a certain extent, is it? Has that been hard? Is dealing with business well, sure. during the pandemic, because things are postponed?
0: Well, We've been fortunate with business continuing to come in, but it's absolutely difficult for a number of reasons. I mean, if if you're doing cases on a contingency basis, as many lawyers are. Then they're not resolving as quickly, and so you don't have that payday coming. Uh, hourly cases often the work isn't there to be done because all these things are being uh, delayed, and in many cases the uh, you know the sort of economic collapse from the pandemic has resulted in clients not being in a position to pay uh, lawyers. So I think lawyers are facing. Uh, a lot of the same economic problems as other people. Uh, on the other hand, people are always going to need legal assistance, and that continues in the pandemic. Uh, criminal cases continue. Uh, you know, I have a couple of SEC cases that are bubbling along. They're taking longer because the commission isn't meeting in person, but they're still moving. And so uh, the world keeps spinning. So you have to Pick and choose which cases uh, you take and bear in mind that things may be slower to pay, uh, but the work is still there.
1: Do you have a sense if maybe a lot of lawyers have changed how they approach retainers? Because, of course, the advice is you always want to get your full retainer up front, but that might be hard right now.
0: Uh, Certainly. I mean, you're always – you're always fighting the battle between getting a big enough retainer to cover expected costs and, on the other hand, getting the case. And, um, you know, the the saying amongst some lawyers is that you can make more money turning cases down sometimes than you can by taking them. <laughs> uh, but I think lawyers probably for the l- most part have recognized that right now in this economy, people aren't going to be having the same big chunks of money sitting around for a big retainer and that uh, you might have to accept a smaller one contingent on some sort of other understanding. So like we like to do things like, okay, we'll take the slower retainer with an agreement that you're gonna pay within 15 days when we send an invoice, something like that, Uh, other measures trying to get uh, security. And the other thing is, is that, you know, the, the reason you get the big retainer is that there's possible that if the person stops paying, uh, the judge won't let you out of the case. But when cases are being kicked a year down the road, judges are a lot more inclined to let you out. So the threat picture changes completely.
1: In federal court, what are the areas of practice that are busy right now with clients who can pay. I know people think it's bankruptcy. Is that correct? Or maybe that's not as much of a booming practice as people think.
0: You know, I have a partner who does bankruptcy uh, who's quite busy, but I'm not, wouldn't be able to speak Uh to that. I know that criminal after a hiatus, uh, federal criminal is picking up again. As uh, the prosecutors and the agents find ways to move things forward, Um, I've done a a series of first appearances in federal court on criminal matters, and I'm doing another one after this uh, recording. And uh, so they're they're starting to – uh, use on a routine basis the the video uh, appearances in federal court for criminal matters. It's getting more smooth and uh, workable, and I think that part of the business is is picking up again, particularly because there's going to be a backlog of work that wasn't done for about six months.
1: Have you had appearances with a client in criminal court?
0: I have, although not uh, physically together.
1: Right. What's your advice on communicate? You can't like whisper. Hey, you shouldn't say that, right? I mean, sure. what, what's your advice on client communication?
0: Um, my advice is to uh, tell them uh, to just say, "Pardon me, I need to talk to my lawyer," and be upfront about it, uh, so that we can step off and have a cell phone call. Uh, my advice is also that we probably need to be more um, careful and explicit and directive and preparing them for what's likely to happen in a hearing. Uh, depending on whether it's audio or video and the video quality, you might be able to get away with uh, texting uh, back and forth during a hearing. But you know, usually I tend to be very careful about um, prepping the client to say as little as possible in court unless there's a cue. So, um, you know, just as an example for a federal guilty plea, you know, it's a very involved, ritualistic process. It takes about half an hour. And uh, there are good examples of you know, transcripts of guilty pleas out there. So you can go through everything they're likely to hear and be asked. So they're not surprised by it and they don't get, you know, blunder into saying something bad because they didn't expect the question. So I, I think it takes more preparation to be careful than it might otherwise take.
1: Do you see any legal trends coming out of the pandemic that it will bring change that will go on for quite some time after the pandemic ends?
0: Absolutely. I think you're going to have more video appearances, more telephonic appearances uh, as a standard, that the expectation of being uh, physically present uh, is going to be reduced. I think a lot of the time that's good. Um, Sometimes, like in criminal cases with... uh, People who are being, um, you know, who don't have private representation and and with overworked public defenders, uh, that's going to be bad. But I think that you know we're going to take a, kind of a quantum leap forward by a good decade or so in terms of the prevalence of uh, remote appearance, which I think saves money and time and is is ultimately a good thing. I mean. Uh, a significant uh, percentage of appearances are just not substantive and don't really need someone standing there in front of the judge. Um, I'm hoping that we'll improve the technology for simultaneously having clients and lawyers appearing by video in front of the judge and also having remote private connections so they can communicate just before and during those uh, appearances. Uh, And I see... You know, a lot of uh, jails and other facilities working out ways to do that, you know, private video rooms and things like that. Uh, I think we have to be very careful about who's spying in on those communications and, and keep an eye on that. But I think overall, it's a positive development.
1: All right. Ken, that's everything I had to ask you today. Thank you so much for
0: joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it.
1: Of course. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.